Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Keen Clancy and today we're speaking to Captain Barry Jones of the Defence Forces Seer School here in Casement Aerodrome Baldonnell. SEER in this case stands for Survival, Escape and Evasion, Resistance to Interrogation and Extraction. Welcome on, Barry. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, so, I suppose what we normally do, and, and it's becoming formulated at this stage, is I'm going to ask you a bit about, about your own career, like and um, how it kind of came to be that you became a subject matter expert in this type of training. So, how long have you been in the Defence Forces? I'm in 16 years now. So, I joined in 2004. Um, it was an aircraft cadet. Um, and really, it was... My first introduction to any sort of survival training was on the wings course. Mm-hmm. Because before you can strap into the aircraft, because of the ejection seats, we had to do post-ejection survival drills. Uh, so that included um, you know, basic survival skills, sitting under a tree basically, light a fire, use the equipment that's in your ejection seat, and you do your, your drag drills then. So when you're under the canopy, on the way down, yeah. what you do when you hit the water. So we did that in the pool first in the Curra. And then we went out to Dublin Bay and we did the drag drills out there. Um, so that's where the initial requirement for formalised survival training came from. So what kind of happened was that you were in training at a time when, the, the, as you say, the requirement for this type of training became apparent. Yeah. And this is then something that you became heavily involved in, in the origination of SEER in the Defence Force of the SEER School. Yeah, so Pilatus, the, the manufacturers of the aircraft, they provided the first... Uh, couple of cadet classes and instructor classes, um, the the survival training. So they sent instructors over, they conducted it. Um, It was grand, it was very basic, very, very basic, and it was just utilising the equipment that was in the ejection seat. So then I got commissioned um, to the military training school here in Baldano. So that's kind of the the BTC. So So the training centre, essentially. Yeah, yeah. so... um, any of the green training in the Air Corps is done there, essentially. So after the first couple of years of Pilatus providing this training, it was to be handed over to the Air Corps to be self-sufficient. So they give us the basic the basic rundown on it. But it, that's all it was. It was very, very basic. So when we were running, um, the first one of them kind of looked around and just there was room for improvement everywhere. Mm. You know, if, if we tasked each of the instructors with, with learning, reading a couple of books. Uh, YouTube was very, very new at the time. There wasn't much on it, but, you know, search the internet. If you can come up with a way of, you know, give us three new ways on how to light a fire with improvised methods mm. and task the next lad, give us three new ways of purifying water, new ways of shelter. So then we'd head off on our own exercises do a little round robin of lessons, teach each other what we had learned. Um, and so we, we kind of just upskilled in-house at first. But we, of course, like everything, you need formalised training. Yeah. So that first came from Sweden. So um, contact was made with the Swedish Sears School and we, uh, there was four headed over, um, myself included, in over a period of two years to get their Sears instructor's qualification. So we got the level C SEER instructor's qualification, and it was in two, two um, I suppose modules. So the first one was a month long, in the month of August. So that was your basic survival skills, and advanced survival skills up to instructor level and standard. Escape and evasion, conduct after capture and resistance to interrogation in the disco as we call it, and then. Um, a bit on personal recovery in the extraction. Mm. So that's that's your, your S, your E, your R, and your E covered. Yeah. And then the second module then was to bring us back in at the end of the January, the following January. Uh, and we went up to into the Arctic Circle, um, up to their one of their tier school locations up there. And uh, we did the Arctic training. So that was steep learning curve. New, new climate. Ireland, see often in Ireland. New climate, fair. new dangers. New lessons to be learned, and literally every time, every time you did something within the first twenty-four hours, there was a lesson to be learned. Yeah, and uh, that's that's like every climate. Every climate has its own challenges. Yeah. So uh, that's that was the first formalised training that the school got. Yeah. So from that, then we modelled our own SEER. It was a survival instructor's course, as it was called then, on 
the Swedish course and we made plenty of tweaks to, to suit our requirements, our climates, all that sort of stuff. Um, then we had um, the SEER officers course in the RAF. Um, a couple of people went over on that. Um, then we had training with the, um, the US Air Force in both SEER and in personnel recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got plenty of qualifications, um, particularly the likes of the reintegration. So when you've actually rescued someone, the next stage of care for them. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's vitally important in, in how we conduct any of the conduct after capture and resistance to interrogation uh, exercises because if they're not handled correctly, they can be quite dangerous because they're, you know, they're quite intense at times. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, we've all kind of seen bits of programs like Homeland and not to, not to be too <laughs> hyperbolic about it, but like obviously someone's going to be heavily affected by an incident like that and yeah. needs to be managed, or their, as you said, their care. Um, just to kind of, I suppose, walk back a small bit, this is relevant to the entire Defence Force, not just the Air Corps, obviously the, the genesis would have come from the idea of a downed aircraft and what you do at that point. But like, so SEER itself, just kind of a bit of the history and the kind of relevance to it in a military context, like with the relevance of, of, of SEER training. Well, SEER is traditionally an Air Force skill. Mm. That's where it originated. So if you if you rewind back to World War II, there was no formalised training. But common sense and, I suppose, previous incidents led, uh, led air crews to knock their heads together and they would either draw or stitch maps into the lining of their, of their flying kit, their jackets and stuff, so that if they were to go down behind enemy lines while on a bombing mission, well, at least they had some sort of navigation aid um, to assist them. Yeah. Uh, they weren't literally high and dry. So um, that was, but there wasn't any formalised kind of training for it. It was just common sense. It was, here, look, at the rate that aircraft are going down, yeah, it could be me next time. So uh, if you move on then to the Korean Wars and the and Vietnam, um, Kazivak became a, a major player in in. Um, in the support role for those wars. So all of a sudden then, when you have a new capability like that, new security mindset and um, and procedures have to be built in support of, of any of those capabilities. And I suppose we image a lot of people from this would see with regard to Kazivak and Medivac as the use of helicopters to do that in, yeah. in say for example Vietnam to, to evacuate casualties. Yeah. Personnel recovery then suddenly became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we rescue people and how do we not put people in harm's way in order to rescue them so the process of authenticating the people on the ground so that the rescue crews know that the person on the ground talking to them is who they say they are um, so from that then I suppose the, the elements of personnel recovery came together so you had SEER where they formalised the training for personnel recovery so SEER is the foundation on which any personnel recovery capability stands. Then you have your rescue forces. They have specialist um, training techniques and procedures um, on how to conduct the rescue. So then you need to coordinate all of that. So then you have your, your personnel recovery staff in the jock, mm-hmm. in the talk, and at, at the various it's levels. Tech operations and through yeah. joint operations. Center. So it's, um, it's quite different to conventional tactics, so much so that um, you know, when a PR event is declared, you're taking over the assets from a colonel. And, and again, for outside with PR, we're not referring to the public relations, which is what yeah. myself and and uh, Captain Harrison from the, from the audiovisual here do. It's the uh, personal recovery is what we mean by yeah. PR. Yeah, you have, like I said, the three elements of personal recovery: so your, your SEER, um, your rescue forces, and your your PR staff. So. That's when it became formalised. And now you have, um, it's mushroomed into this absolutely enormous capability in the form of joint personal recovery. So you'll have land, air and sea assets Mm -hmm. across multinational uh, militaries in a single task force. So personal recovery is a separate task force and it's literally a standby asset. So they'll either have dedicated assets, which they only conduct PR operations, um, or they'll have designated. So a QRF might be the designated. It's not their primary function, but it's in addition to whatever else. So if something was to happen to 
you know, any Irish troops in Undoff or in in Unifil, yet the QRF would be tasked to conduct a personal recovery operation to to authenticate and extract them. Okay, great. Well, I suppose what we might do is we might kind of go into in a bit more depth into those various letters of the acronym, so like your mm-hmm. survival, your um, your escape and evasion resistance and uh, to interrogation and extraction. So kind of first of all, when we can actually talk about the survival part of SEER, like what, exa- what exactly do we mean? We well, SEER is the Gucci part of it. Yeah. The survival part of it is the, is the most definitely the most interesting for most people. So we address... probably the thing people think about. It is the first it. thing that people think about, which is, which is a misconception we're trying to battle at the moment. Yeah. Because the most important part of SEER is the extraction. Mm-hmm. How you get your ass on a seat to a better place to get you home. Yeah. Because if that happens quickly, you don't need to survive, you don't need to evade, you don't need to resist interrogation. Mm-hmm. You just get on the radio and make it happen. Yeah. So in terms of the survival stuff, we address the principles of survival. So protection. So that's protection from the elements. So a roof over your head, get a shelter, and keep away the cold, fire. So fire and shelter, we address them under the branch of uh, protection. Uh, next would be location. Um, how to navigate using improvised methods, make your own maps, um, how to evade, how to um, how to use a button compass, yeah. which is, you know, the head and wheel wobble literally from 180 degrees while you're on the move. Exactly. So how to how to trust that, how to make a map, how to gauge um so as you're walking features and how fast you're yeah. moving. Yeah. Um, and again, you might be looking at this in the dark with just a tiny little light from your watch. Yeah. So when you were making it, you might have had 10 different colours on it, but they all look the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at night, yeah. under a red light, or if even a red light. Um, so that takes a bit of practice, and, and uh, that's, that's really kind of the skill element of, uh, of location. Mm-hmm. But the most important part is your evasion plan of action, or your route plan. Mm-hmm. Um, where are you? Where are you supposed to go? What are your actions on? At what point are you evading? You know, yeah. knowing where, where the, the fine line is between, okay, is this just, am I lost and do I need to go back to my last RV? Which could be your first step yeah. in your evasion plan of action. Or... Are you too far out of the way, or are there people hurt? Are there assets damaged? Is there absolutely no way of getting back? And are you going to attract more heat by staying out there yeah. and trying to do it yourself? So it's recognizing all of them and putting them into a formal plan. So what does your evasion plan of action tell you to do, and where does it tell you to go? Okay. Um, and then you have water and food, the obvious ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, so again, various techniques on, on how to address them in different climates and how to purify water. Um, yeah, so it's... So the kind of environmental fact, like, is it what you can actually eat, like, from the perspective of vegetation or anything, like, around the place, or, or how to uh, trap animals and that kind of thing as well, yeah. is all part of that. Um, and actually, the, the Americans, well, they're always the all singing, all dancing, you know, they've, they're the best of everything. But their evasion charts for air crew include on the back the local flora and fauna in that region. Um, so they'll tell you what stars will be visible in the night sky, how to navigate from them, Yeah. Um, poisonous plants and animals, uh, and it'll have little diagrams and pictures of them. So do not eat this one. If you see this one, it needs to be cooked. Um, that kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's very, very interesting to see some of them. Okay, and fantastic. We, we managed to pick up a few keepsakes along the way. Yeah, a few souvenirs. Um, well, we had to climate, climate dependent. We were when we were talking beforehand about, about the podcast and what we were going to do, we would spoke about the Irish climate and how it's surprisingly harsh. It is, yeah. Um, I mean, when people think of harsh climates, they think of desert, extreme mm. heat and very little water, which it is. It's a very harsh climate. Uh, the Arctic is also considered a desert because there's very little rainfall. Mm. You know, the precipitation is dry. The snow is actually dry up there. Yeah. Um, so it's dry cold, which has its own issues. Again, it's a very harsh climate. But we're cold and wet. Um, so as soon as we get wet, we're cold. And our risk of hypothermia is, is surprisingly quick yeah. in winter in Ireland. And people don't realise that because we live here all the time. And, you know, we might wander out with just a jacket on 
you know, jacket and t-shirt and your, your grand or a simple hoodie and that's yeah. more than enough. As soon as you get wet, everything changes. Um, and we actually use that as a factor in how we launch exercises yeah. because it completely changes your priorities. When you're wet, everything changes. So I suppose it makes Ireland a very good place to actually train this discipline. It does, yeah. We're in a temperate climate. It's never too hot, never too cold. It's, um, it's it, Our equipment that we have is actually very good. Yeah. Some of it is very good. Some of it, yeah, there's issues with it, um, particularly when we go to other climates. But for our climate, um, one piece of kit in particular, do you remember the old Norgies? The Norgie yeah, fleece, yeah, and it had the thumb holes fleece, on it. Yeah, yeah. That was the single best bit of kit I was ever issued. But here, only the cooks and the medics seemed to wear them. Whereas I wore that in the Arctic as a base layer, as a base thermal layer. Yeah. And I brought a couple extra, gave them to the Swedes uh, for swapsies. Mm-hmm. And uh, they fell in love with them. They were mad for them. Yeah. But it was the single best bit of kit when it was used like that. For that For that, for climate, that climate, it's called an orgy for a reason. Yeah. You know, it's a Norwegian fleece. Yeah. Base layer. It was a thermal. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, and then we come back here and they're just worn like a jumper. You know, yeah. when, when your smock is too wet. <laughs> yeah. And they're not waterproof. Got and they're not waterproof, yeah. yeah. That's very interesting. Like, but like the different changes of climates and, and that kind of thing, I mean, it, all the different challenges that it, it, uh, it, present, it presents to you. Um, but kind of moving on then kind of from the survival stuff and the sort of things that when people hear of survival training, this is what they think of. They think of, as used to, like skinning rabbits in the woods or something like that, yeah. like, or, you know, building up a little... Kind of yeah, everyone, fairy tale shelter for yourself. themselves as a bear grills for a night, you know. Yeah, and that's when people think of of seer, and particularly the seer instructors course. That's what that's what they want to do. Yeah. Um, but like I said, yeah, we do that. It's the first couple of weeks is intensive bushcraft skills, um, but the whole focus of seer is getting rescued. Yeah, it's getting out. Get out. So moving on into the second part of it. So you're escaping evasion. So what kind of principles are we talking about with regard to escape and evasion? If you, like, I mean, what situation precipitates the need to escape and evade as well? Um, evasion, that'll be dictated in your evasion plan of action. Yeah. Okay. Um, where are you going? Uh, what are the rules of engagement? Are civilians friendly, local? All these things influence your decision to, is, is it too dangerous to stay here? Yeah. And do I need to start moving? So, if you're moving under duress, you're evading. Um, but, you know, the term evasion, a lot of people don't like it. Because it seems like it's a, it's a sign of weakness. But it's not. <laughs> it's yeah. your method of getting from A to B in order to get rescued. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of the terms, a lot of them are very NATO-Americanized terms. And... You know, for a lot of the European nations, they might turn their nose up at that. Um, but for evasion, it's the skills that we teach are the improvised navigation, how to make maps, how to, um, and map memory is another one, um, how to break it down into legs. And that's actually a very important skill because, I don't know if you remember when you're cadet and you're tabbing over the hills, when you have the map in your hand, you check it more often. Yeah. Whereas if you were to just look at that for 30 seconds, memorize your route, roll that over in bullet points, you wouldn't, and your map was taken away from you, you'd still get there. Yeah, exactly. You'd have an idea. you trust the information that you've committed to your mind. Which that kind of connects to something that we mentioned before, is that like your evasion is like, it's like an expansion of fieldcraft that you would probably do in partially in basic training. It's just, it's, become, it's just more advanced fieldcraft, essentially. It is, yeah. It's looking at the terrain in a different way and selecting your route differently because where you're, uh, where you're normally, you know, don't lose ground, because you'll only have to gain it again yeah. on a traditional uh, route walk or whatever. Um, now you're looking for cover. Now you're looking, okay, if I can move faster through a wooded area, yeah. because I won't have to worry about making noise under my feet if the wind is blowing and the trees are making noise. Yeah. Whereas if you're going across open ground, standing on sticks, you'll be seen, you'll be heard, and so on. So, you know, so it's a slightly different, uh, different approach to, to field craft, but very similar principles. Yeah. So you got your evasion part, which, as we said, is like an expansion of the field craft that you, you would have sort of start, start on a more basic level than other types of your training. Yeah. The escape part, what, what do we mean by escape? Well, escape, literally that. How to get out of restraints, be they handcuffs, cable ties, um, opening padlocks, combination locks. We go through all that stuff, and that's, it's great fun. 
Yeah. It's great fun to do, it's great fun to teach, and it's it's a good party trick, you know, how to get out of handcuffs with yeah. when you're handcuffed behind your back. But um yeah, so we incorporate that into one of the exercises as well, where they have to escape. Mm-hmm. So we teach the students then how to how to conceal different escape uh, tools, I suppose. Some small little handcuff keys, little shims, um, hair clips, that kind of thing. Yeah. How to hide them in, into the uniform, into the boots, that kind of thing. And there's there's a signal given then. Um, once real restraints are put on them, it's fair game they yeah. to try to escape. And then once they escape, it's they're kicking into. I'm now evading if I'm on the move. Yeah. Where am I supposed to go? And it kicks into the, kind of the rest of an exercise. The wider exercise, yeah. which is kind of going to the second place. But it was just an interesting um, point that was made when we were discussing the subject. Um, the fact that trying to escape is basically an ongoing process for the whole, aside from the actual survival element of it, for the whole exercise, trying to escape is, is just, is a, it's a constant consideration. You're constantly looking for ways to, to get out of what you're yeah, doing. From the moment you've been captured, you're looking for an opportunity. But again, it's you know when to move. I mean, if you're in a locked room in, you know, in a bigger building that's in a compound and there's lots of people around, yeah. you know, you're not going to get very far and your attempt is going to get you some some uh, pretty close attention, so we say, you know. Yeah. So knowing when to go is the biggest consideration. But you're always looking for the opportunity, you know. Uh, looking at the type of handcuffs you're in, or is it cable ties, or is it a rope? Can I use my boot laces to get through this? Yeah. You know, like you can, you can burn through a cable tie by cycling your way through it with the laces. Um, can you pick the locks? Are they double glazing window? How do I break the window? Which which corner points am I going for? You know, yeah. does the door open in or out? Um, just little considerations like that. So yeah, you're always always looking for an opportunity. And even when escape isn't you know, your your primary concern um, or the opportunity isn't available. That's when you're going back into your your conduct after capture mode. Build a rapport with yeah. with with uh, your captors and see if you can wrangle yourself an extra meal or a cup of coffee. And kick on from there. Which we're going to win in the resistance part of it, but just as regards the sort of when you're out and you're in that kind of escape and evasion part of an exercise, because you spoke about like multi agency and different use and the directing staff using different assets such as helicopters and dogs. Like, what's that experience like for you as the person who's evading in, in that? I would presume it's a very stressful experience for you. It is. It's a it's a good adrenaline rush, and it lasts a long time. Yeah. Um, because when you hear dogs close, you know it does give you that little shot of adrenaline, and you immediately try and try and move, get more ground between you and the dogs, and then all of a sudden there's a helicopter overhead or you hear a search party only 100 metres away, and you know you need to head in one direction and you know it's blocked off, where do you go? So there's all these considerations come yeah. flying through your head all at once um, because you know then if you're captured, um, for our evasion exercises, we penalise them with, with distance. So it's back a few K and tab that horrible ground again. Yeah. Um, so that's worse than, you know, taking a bit of, of physical punishment is having to cover the same ground again. It's yeah. mental torture. So it's And so you do that as part of the exercise. It's like, well, you didn't do well enough over this stretch of ground, so you're going to have to do it again and yeah, try and stay away. If people are, you know, purposely getting caught to take a break. Okay, right. And that's happened. Yeah, right, go back a few K there. Yeah. That'll soften your cough. And off you go again. Yeah. <laughs> let's, con- let's continue this roller coaster ride. Um, we mentioned as well, like, the fact that there's a multi-agency within element within the training and that we work with with Angarichi Kana for for the use of yeah, the dog we use, unit. We use the dog unit. We've we've had a very good relationship with them over the last few years. Um and in previous years we've um we've used the prison dogs as well, but the prison the prison dog unit isn't uh, they've been disbanded. Mm-hmm. They're not in use anymore. So uh, that brought us closer to the guards again. And yeah. of course they've the various different types of dogs. They have their public order dogs which are uh, quite robust, shall we say? Yeah. Um, but we use them on the SEER instructors course to give the students an exposure to what it's like to be confronted with a dog and mm-hmm. how to handle yourself when you are. So we get them into the bite suits, and we um, give them the demonstration 
it's almost like a firepower demonstration. Yeah, of course, they, yeah. they take off running, and the dog comes and literally rugby tackles you. Yeah, and they're uh, they're big beasts. Yeah, right. So yeah, yeah, and then of course they have the tracker dogs, and then they're sniffer dogs. But we don't we don't use the sniffer dogs. Yeah, uh, the way other elements of the military would. Yeah, um, it's purely for for tracking and for for um, yeah. I, I, I imagine <laughs> yeah, imagine put frighteners on you if you're if you're off trying to stay away, and you can hear them making noise behind you and howling and barking. Yeah, it's it's even if you only hear them barking, if you never actually encounter them in the exercise. It's a very good effect. Mm-hmm. It has a very, very powerful effect because you know they're close, you know they're there, and you, you don't want to have one of them breathing down your neck. Yeah, you know? yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So and I'm just imagining me out at night in the, you know, and hearing howling and barking on a kind of bloodhound howl. Um, but yeah, so, okay, so eventually the exercises are set up on the courses that yep. you run to be, ca- to be captured in order to exercise students in that resistance to interrogation yeah and so what are we talking what are the different elements of like resistance to interrogation so, you, so you've been ca- you've been captured and you, you haven't been able to escape so what do you do well we there's two elements to it really there's conduct after capture and then there's resistance to interrogation so to put them in, in perspective of levels of training SEER is, is divided up into three categories level A which is just lectures um, we generally give that to civvies through UNSI, so NGOs and Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Okay. And, uh, That's through the UN Training School in, in for those of us who oh, don't know, the UN Training School in the uh, Cora Camp. So, um, yeah, and we've had ambassadors and, and consulate teams rolling through there, and we've, we've, we've done what we call the Level B, which is the next one, the Level B conduct after capture. So Level B um, would be the young entrant standard. So everyone coming into the Army, be it cadets, recruits, um, we tried to capture that then in uh, potential NCO course and standard NCO courses. And then, of course, specialist stuff as well. Um, so that everyone has the minimum standard, which is level B. So yeah. that's your lectures, your practical lessons on survival, evasion, um, and extraction procedures. And then you do a 24-hour exercise. So that's, that's your level B qualification. And the purpose of the exercise then is confirmation of skills with with the survival stuff and how to authenticate and get rescued basically yeah. so go through your extraction procedures the add-on to that then the level b um conduct after capture uh, there's no interrogation in it but we have a series of situation loops in that that we exercise them with and that can be anything from being offered food um to making them clean the room but it's a group dynamic yeah and um, so it's a psychologist's dream, really, seeing seeing the uh, seeing the group dynamic and seeing the stress that some of the situation loops put in them. So there is um, there's the jumpsuit one where we come in, we pick one. I'm leaving this room. I'll be back in two minutes. Somebody better be in that uniform when I come back in. So everyone knows what the orange jumpsuit means, and you know what we want is the group to pull together and to resist yeah. as a unit. Because the group dynamic is actually very, very powerful. So it's to try and make it as hard as possible for the role players, for the, for your captors, to be nasty and cruel to you. Um, and there's simulated rape one, um, where you're trying to coax someone out of the room, you know, with, oh, I have a nice bed, I, I can get you a hot yeah. meal and all this sort of stuff. So we want the group to pull together and to stop this from happening. Yeah. Um, and there's, yeah, there's... The God question comes up, you know, um, which can be can be very interesting. And certain stubborn stubborn people dig in in their own beliefs and not realizing, no, this is an opportunity to build a rapport. Yeah. So rapport building is really the core of what we teach in conduct after capture. The humanizing end was humanize you yourself. humanize yourself to your captors. Exactly. So you don't want to be, just appear as a uniform. You want to be seen as a father. Or mother, or brother, sister, you know, yeah. that you are a person, that you you have a soft side, and yeah, you raise money for charities, and you're a great lad, um, but and all of that, the whole purpose of that then is to make it that bit harder for them to be cruel to you, yeah, because the more likable you are, the less likely you are to be hurt, yeah. So it's how to how to work on that, and then the level C, which. Um, what defines level C is that it's resistance to interrogation. 
So it's the protection of sensitive information, be it intelligence, be it um, special forces, any of the specialist forward groups like snipers, foos, uh, seer, um, recce, any, any of that sort of stuff. Um, so they generally require level C. And when they start off, they're, they start off on a mission in these exercises. They have an objective uh, to complete on a timeline, then they're captured and they have to protect that information throughout a timeline. So we encourage the slow release of information. Because if you just zip your mouth, you're going to be in trouble pretty quick. And the problem is, is that once you incite violence, it's very hard to rewind. You know, um, yeah. it's like it's like cocking the rifle before, yeah, before even shouting, get back. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's the next step you have is you're only left with pulling the trigger. Yeah. So if you incite violence, it's very hard to rewind. Okay. Yeah. Right. So 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 the I suppose the counterintuitive trick here is to that you have to give up something. You have to say something. Yeah. And what we try to teach as well is that. If you're in interrogation, your ass is on a seat. You're not standing in the disco, getting softened. When we say when we say the disco, it's it's the sensory. sensory the, the, yeah, sensory deprivation. It's the holding area. Yeah, it's the large cell. So um, that's where you're kept in quite uncomfortable conditions for a period of time. Yeah. So that's that's what's known as softening. And then for the interrogations, um, the longer you appear to have information to give, the longer you'll be in there. Yeah, and people think, oh God, you don't want to be in interrogation for too long. But if you've been standing, for, or if you've been on the run for twenty-four hours, yeah. and now you're staring, you're on your twelfth hour standing. Um, the best place to be is with your ass on a seat, making yourself seem like you're important. Yeah, and if you if the information if the information is important enough to give in the expired timeline that has just passed, yeah, you give it, and you try and play that for a reward. Can I get a cup of coffee? Because I've Can appeared I get a bar to, chocolate. to cooperate. Just yeah. because the information I've given is now out of date, they don't know that. They just think yeah. they've, your captors have think, have thought, think that you're yeah. just giving them something. So when you start giving the real information of that stuff, you'll know that your cover story is blown. Yeah. So it's always the cover story first. And when that's absolutely pulled, pulled apart, you need to recognise that. Because if you start, you start harping on and maintaining that, oh, no, no, it's the cover story here, that's gospel. That's the only thing that happened, and they're able to pull it apart and explain that to you. If you keep insisting on that, you know things are going to get downhill pretty quick. You're going to appear useless to them. You're going to, you'll just be a proven liar. Yeah. We spoke about like that the um, sensory deprivation or the, like the disco room, the holding area is a very intense environment for people, and, and instructors have to take on roles that can be threatening, that can be intimidating to the students, and there's an awful lot of. Um, it's 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 not an easy course. It's not a light course because it can't be because you have to be tested. Your resistance to interrogation has to be tested. And I presume there's an awful lot of there's a lot of supervision required on an exercise for that. From from your perspective, quite apart from an actual real situation, you don't want it to appear fake, but also you don't want it to go too far. Yeah, it's it's a delicate balance. You know, it has it's robust training. It needs to be because anything less than than tough is just you know it's. It's walk in the park. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we're not looking to hurt people and damage people. Yeah. Um, enough to give you a scare of going, oh my God, if this happened for real, yeah, we would be in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the level of supervision um, we have, it's, it's extensive. So everything that happens in the disco room, in the holding cell, is recorded. And when I mean everything, I mean everything. Uh, every time... The cuffs are rotated from behind your back to your front. That's recorded. Every time you take a drink of water, it's recorded. And how much. Yeah. Um, when the time you go to the toilet, if you fell over, um, if you requested to make contact, every single thing is recorded. Yeah. Every sip of water. So all that's recorded on a whiteboard so that um, me as OEC of the exercise can come in and have a look. Um, and if someone hasn't drank water in, you know, if they've only had two sips of water in six hours, you know, you need to force feed him some water. Yeah. He's at risk of, of dehydration here. Or if someone is drinking lots of water and taking lots of toilet breaks, hang on, he's playing the game here. Yeah. You know, you can, you, you've good oversight and stuff like that. And then we record that on paper as well for, for training files. Um, then, 
moving people. Um, everyone, nobody can gain access to the room unless they've been trained as a contact after capture instructor. The khakis, as we call them, the contact after capture instructors. So the role players are the ones asking the questions, mm -hmm. conducting the interrogation. So in the corner of the room, then we have safety supervisors, um, seer instructors. Um, everyone who's involved has been through this before. So they understand how tough it is. Um, so the safety supervisor is there to monitor not only the progress of the interview and keeping time and keeping in the schedule, but also um, to supervise the administration of the torture techniques as per the training instruction. So how hard the hits are, the pressure points that are used and all that kind of thing. So it means that nobody can step out of line without intervention. Mm -hmm. So they're standing behind in the corner in the dark and if, you know, if one of the uh, conduct after capture instructors, the role players, does get a bit giddy, um, which it thankfully doesn't happen that often, they can come in and stop it. Yeah, okay. Um, and then me as OIC exercise, I'm moving between all the different, uh, the different locations and elements of the exercise, making sure that it's running on time, making sure that the medical checks are being done, coordinating the doctor's visits, all that sort of stuff. And I come in and out of the interviews as well, just supervising standards again. So they're the three elements, really. Yeah. Okay, so there's a whole like network of, of sort of protection around the students for the course like this, so that, yeah. so that you can have something that is that effective in, in training that resistance to interrogation, while at the same time being, very, being, being a real structure around it as well. Yeah, and these exercises are only ever conducted in the presence of a doctor, mm -hmm. not just getting a medic on standby, it's a doctor. And then at the end of the courses, uh, or at the end of the exercise then, they go through reintegration debriefs, so that's to psychologically decompress them yeah. and try and extract some of the, the real-time intelligence from them, from what they've gone through, from the point that they executed their evasion plan of action. So... Um, Nearly all of the instructors in the school are qualified reintegration debriefers, and we got that from the Joint Personnel Recovery Agency in the States yeah. with, through the US Air Force. And that has been a godsend because it makes things safer. Yeah. Because you're not just pulling people out of what is a very, very extreme environment and then going, right, here's some grub, go to bed. It's too much of a contrast. Yeah. The, the come down out of such an extreme uh, scenario like that needs to be gradual, and they need to talk about it. And you can see that the shoulders are tense at the start and they gradually come down. Yeah. And it's only then when you know that they're freely talking about it and how it impacted them. When they've accepted that it, okay, it's over now. That it's over. So and, oh my God, that was, that was tough. Yeah, it was intense stuff. It's okay. Whereas some people take 15 minutes to do it. Other people might take an hour or more yeah. to come down out of that. So it's, it's been able to recognize that. And... We did that with, with live troops in the States. Um, wow. So it was, it was great. It was brilliant. Great eye-opener. Yeah, yeah, just to see. Just to, see, just to see how it's done, how important it is. And that is the, the, the first step of, of, I suppose, care. Yeah. Aside from medical, um, that once repatriation happens, that continues. Yeah, because it's interesting word to use, like care as well, like, because in a real situation, if, if you are, someone has to go through all this whole process, and we're going to talk about the extraction process in a second, there is then a duty of care for the organisation when that person comes home. It, it's going to take a while for them to be reintegrated. And it's a national responsibility. So if, say, the Americans, or let's say Mali, it's, um, the Germans, uh, providing the, the PR capability out there, so if they rescue an Irish person, it's up to the Irish DF to reintegrate them. Mm -hmm. They could do it for us, but they generally just hand it off, and it's generally done on a, on a national yeah, basis. That's Everyone looks after their own. That's, that point, yeah. that's, that's the conventional way of doing things. Um, so it is very important, and in the last oh, 15 years, say, I mean, everyone remembers Sharon Cummins, uh, the NGO who went missing in Chad, um, when she was brought into Chad um, from Darfur, she got off the government jet here in Baldonnell to a frenzy of press um, because nobody knew any better. Yeah. But like for her coming from that to 
being all over the papers, a superstar essentially in terms of the media. Everyone wanted a piece of her. That's very extreme. Yeah, that's not the gradual come down for, for. Uh, and that could potentially have a very poor effect on someone's mental state. It could, and and you know everyone handles things differently, but it, that could very easily break someone. Yeah. Um, you know, so the government, Department of Foreign Affairs, that was that was their gig in in um, getting her back, but there was just no awareness of reintegration and how things are done within a military. Yeah. Um, so there were lessons learned from that, uh, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but yeah, reintegration is is absolutely vital, and we conduct that at the end of all our conduct after capture. Okay. Exercises. And I suppose, so when we talk about the conduct after capture, we kind of talked about the various different types and the kind of the different elements you're going to experience, and and also the debriefing afterwards. Um, the actual extraction extraction phase, we kind of touched on it briefly at the start of the of the show. Um, so, people don't seem to realise, you, you need to prove who you are, but first of all, before you're actually going to be picked up, yeah, even, yeah. If it, even if it seems to you very obvious that you are who you are. Yeah, you need to authenticate. Um, and the whole purpose of SEER is to get extracted. Because the sooner you can make the extraction happen, means you don't need to rely on surviving, evading, resisting interrogation. Yeah. Because you can make the extraction happen quicker. And the whole purpose of SEER is training people how to get a lift home quicker. And if it's not going to happen quick, then you need to survive. So the final E, the extraction, is the most important part of of It's the point. It is the whole point of it. Get rescued. So if you've managed to survive and evade and resist and then escape, and you don't know how to hail for a heli and get you out of there quick, well, what was the point? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, you might have been better staying where you were and hoping that someone stumbles across you. Yeah. So the, the extraction, authenticating is vital. It is the green light for the execution of the mission because no commander is going to, is going to commit assets to something that can't be proven to be safe. So it's done by authentication. So you'll have your personnel recovery information that is drafted from the special instructions, the spins. Uh, and you fill out pre, pre-mission, which, which is, in fact, in my experience in my overseas deployments, we always filled something like that out before going. Yeah, so you'll have your PR information from from the jock and the talk, and that will be supplemented then with um, your isoprep, your isolated personnel report form. So that is basically a questionnaire on yourself. It'll have... It'll give you all the stats about you, your height, your weight, photos, fingerprints, all that kind of stuff. But you'll also be asked then for uh, authentication statements. Four questions with an answer for each of them. So the question should have, or the question should have four answers, if you know what I mean. So what was your first car? My first car was a red, there's your first one, Nissan. Almira, it was in 1998. Okay, so there's your four pieces of information. Yeah. Um, and the reason why you want four pieces of information for each one is there's more opportunity there to authenticate. Because if you just blurt all that out at once, there's one question gone, an entire question gone. Yeah. Whereas now I have four opportunities to ask you about your car. What year was it? 98. What colour was it? Red. What was the make of it? Yeah. Nissan. What was the model? Almir. Yeah. And that multiplied by four questions with four. You have 16 opportunities now to authenticate. And only you will know those answers. Like it could be the, the my first child was a girl. Her name was this. Her weight was this. She was born on this date. Yeah. There you go. Only you would know that. You know, people might be able to guess certain elements of it. So you'd ask two questions. And that supplemented then with the, the, the PR information from the spins, which is a part of your evasion plan of action. So your word of the week, your word of the day, your letter, your number. And so these are words just that you've agreed beforehand in, in the document? They would be, no, the PR information comes from the jock. Yeah. And that is drafted from the special instructions from higher HQ. Okay. But you so would be having an appraise of that in the end. They would be drafted into the mission orders. Yeah. So they would have their own paragraph at the end. 
and it's word of the day, word of the week, the letter. Some use colour. Um, and your dress word as well. So that your dress word, if you are compelled to use the radio with a gun to your head, because they want to ambush the rescue forces, you could say, I don't know, you're holding a, you're holding a pencil there. I could bring that into my call sign. So I could say, pencil, liner, bravo, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It sounds completely reasonable. It doesn't sound like it's, you're screaming, you're walking into an ambush here, go away. Yeah. But what that'll do is trigger anyone listening to the net, especially back in the jock, um, to reassess this and go, oh, hang on, they're under duress. We need a bigger, uh, a bigger security uh, model, I suppose, to, to, to commit to this. Yeah, okay. So um, they might hold off on the rescue and then involve more assets, make yeah. it safer. Okay. And that, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. Some, something that I'm sure a lot of people would have thought about would be these other aspects. Do you know what I mean? The idea in, that your face mean or your face or your voice are enough authentication to say yeah. who you are. I mean, it's not the case. Um, and also the fact the fact that you have other kind of mission specific things like your word of the week and your and your duress and your duress word. Duress word is a particularly interesting concept as well to remain calm enough to pass information to headquarters without the person who has you knowing what you've done. Yeah, it's that ability needs to be there. Um, but I'm, like to do that for real. To wave off a rescue for you yeah. must be the hardest thing in the world. Yeah, to commit exactly. your, your duress word, you know, you just want to get out of there. Yeah. You want them to come in and blitz the place and get you out in one piece. So to wave them off, to allow them to do it properly, yeah, it's it's necessary. Yeah, it takes a serious degree of training and a serious kind of acceptance of it, like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. And yeah, then there's the signal equipment as well then. So that's... Again, it all boils down to the seer training, how to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's to be used is that designated in your evasion plan of action. So when you say the signal, what would you read? So your it will designate what's your primary daytime. So your primary daytime, if you're, you know, in in Mali, would probably be your heliograph, your little sun reflecting mirror, um, and smoke. Okay. So it'll be a, a designated colour. So these are the things to look that the rescue forces are to look for. To that they are to look for. So if if you've been authenticated and just on uh, just as they're about to, to touch down, final authentication by by those means could be okay um, when you're talking to them on the radio, I want you to add the sum of your last two army numbers and memorize it. Don't say it. And you'll roll through the numbers. So let's say, for instance, it was five. And you'll rattle through the numbers. Ten, six. You know. Yeah. On When I say that number, I want you to activate your secondary daytime signal. And you roll through the numbers. Five will come up. You see orange smoke. And you get on. I see orange smoke. Is that correct? Yeah, that's me. You slap down. Rescue. I got so... Yeah, final authentication happens then. So the rescue teams come down. It's quite uh, robust because you're not friendly until you're friendly. Yeah, yeah. So it is a hard concept for one to wrap your head around because yeah. I presume you're just delighted to see somebody that's wearing yeah. the same uniform as uh, you. You need to follow the procedures. So the procedures for extraction are that you get in the crucifix position on your knees, which are back to be it the heli, the moag, the the FFR, whatever it is that's coming to get you. And if you have a radio or a weapon, you hold that in your right hand. Um, so they'll come pretty much rugby tackle you to the ground, a quick search of you and make sure you're not booby-trapped and, and everything else. And they will ask you the question from your isoprep then. Yeah. So what was the colour of your first car? Red. That's him. Looks like him. He's given the right answer. Onto the heli. Gone. And from that point, from the time that you get hands-on, reintegration commences. Yeah. So that's when you're you're trying to psychologically decompress them. That's that's that is the constant. But the immediate uh, the immediate goal is to get any real time information from what's going on out there. Yeah. Who else was out there? Were there many other? Uh, how many enemy were involved? Because we've had reports of there was five, there was ten. How many were actually there? Yeah. So you're trying to validate some of the reports that come in, get the real time intelligence, and 
those sort of debriefs continue then over the period of days and weeks. So you're looking then to filter that back into the operational and training cycles. So if the evasion plan of action didn't work, well, then we need to overhaul it because yeah. that's part of operations. And you do that by incorporating it into the training to see if it works. And goes you're up to the operations. And lessons learned, essentially. From lessons learned, and you, you keep, keep the ball rolling with yeah. it. Um, did the equipment work? Yes, no. Why did it not work? If it worked, great. Let's, let's get more of it. Um, those sort of things. Um, all while getting them to talk about it. And the more they talk about it, um, I suppose the concept of it is like telling a joke. First time you hear a joke, oh, it's hilarious. You fell on the ground laughing like you were rolling around the place. Next time you heard it, oh, you got a chuckle out of it, all right. Third time you heard it, oh, it's this one, is it? So the more you talk about stuff, yeah. the easier it becomes to accept. And the more you can get your head around it and compartmentalise the tougher elements of it so that, yes, this happened. I'm okay after it. Um, and that's, that's, I suppose, the, the method of reintegration that we do and how we debrief them. Very, very different to the PSS style of, of, um, of interview. Yeah, the kind of personal support services interview that yeah. we would probably do. I mean, we get a certain amount of personal support services um, when they come out to Lebanon before they, before they go home, and the kind of, yeah. which, is, which is more to do with sort of re-entering family life and stuff when you've been away, but this is actually dealing with something yeah. traumatic that's happened to you. Yeah, and PSS do play a role, but it's generally after repatriation, because yeah. the, the SEER debriefs um, are generally considered part of the operational um, output, I suppose. Because there's useful intelligence that can be gleaned from yeah. you as well. Yeah, and then once once that's done and they're basically fit for repatriation, that's that's where the PSS style of of debrief comes into its own, and that that has its own purpose as well. It's it's excellent, um, but it's very different to the operational yeah. stuff that that SEER and intelligence debriefs um, require. I suppose just to kind of finish up on that, uh, but just the like the sort of content of the instructors course. What what can people expect within the defence force for members who are listening now? who might want to come down and do a SEER instructor's course? It's four weeks long. Mm -hmm. So the first two and a half weeks really are intensive bushcraft skills, so your survival skills. Getting them up to speed, up to instructor level, how to make fire. Uh, there's various different tests along the way and they'll be sick of making fire because um, literally they have to bring their stuff everywhere. So at any random moment they could be told, make fire. And it doesn't matter whether they're sitting in the classroom or outside, scrambles on, make fire. Um, so it goes through, like I mentioned earlier, we address the principles of survival. It's a protection location, food and water, butchery of animals, all that sort of stuff. Um, and there's various confirmation exercises then. So the first one is 24-hour exercise. Um, and like that, everything's graduated. We don't just throw people in at the deep end. Everything is confirmation of the basics, Let's step that up to instructor level. Let's go into a 48-hour exercise with evasion, yeah. um, contact after capture and resistance. And then the main exercise is five days. So that's the long-term evasion plan in effect. Yeah. So we pretty much put a pause at the end of the contact after capture, after the escape serial, and we resume it then to mention the main exercise. Yeah. So, um, yeah. They're, they're moving over serious ground, serious amount of, of distance, um, undulating terrain, as, as of course it, it always would be, best cover up there. But um, what they're doing is they're using the local resistance movements that the likes of human would have had in place. So human intelligence, so, the, yeah. Human intelligence, yeah. So the intelligence lads going out, making their contacts to work for us. Yeah. So in that scenario... It's done by dead letter boxes, so there could be, they could be told, you have an agent contact at such and such a point, at such and such a time, you meet them, they might show them a map. Okay, it's not safe to move here, here or here, the enemy are operating up there, but if you head across here and go down to these woods, there's good cover, spend the night there, yeah. I'll leave a dead letter box at the bridge. So a dead letter box, just as something leaves something there. Just, it could, be, could be a bin, it could be under a bench, it could be under a rock. You know, they would they would tell them exactly where it is, yeah. and that is where they would leave notes for them to tell them, no, it's not safe. Stay here another night, or move to here. 
here's a map. Um, when you get there, destroy the map, that kind of thing, you know. So they're protecting themselves by not exposing themselves, but at the same time then it's, you know, when you get here, your new dead letter box will be at the bottom of the stop sign at the junction. Yeah. Um, so that information can be passed discreetly, covertly, um, and you're basically getting that step closer to home. And then at the end of that, when they've managed to find themselves a proper extraction point, a designated area of recovery, that's when they set up their signal fire because they're on minimal equipment. They go through their no radio or nordo procedures as per the evasion plan of action, yeah. put out the ground-to-air signal, or GTAS as it's known as, and hail for the heli. So when they see the heli coming, um, they light the fire, they'll be issued radios via dead letter box, and they authenticate. So they're going through that authentication procedure of using their PR info from the spins, Yeah. Um, so your word of the day, your, all that kind of stuff, um, and they give them an opportunity to use their duress word. So it could be, I'm just going to ask you a question, if you're in duress, respond now. And it's a, it's a case of, you know, now's the chance to get it into the call sign or, or whatever the case is. And they go through the extraction drills. They get yeah, rugby tackles to the ground and the quick lot. search, final authentication from the information on their isopreps that only they can answer. Yeah. Um, and for large groups, usually what they do is they'll keep the group down and bring forward whoever was authenticating on the radio. Yeah. Bring them forward. So they get authenticated, searched, and they bring them down to say, yep, he's one, two, three, four. And no need to authenticate absolutely everyone. Okay. So it's just, is he on the list? Yep, yeah, is he on the list? What's his name? And you tick them off as you go. Because if you're there asking questions from the isoprep to every individual, there could be 15, 20, could be yeah. a platoon there. Yeah, for ages. You're there for ages. So it's get one man, is everyone here who they say they are? And you just tick off on the manifest. Everyone's there, get on. Because a heli on the ground is a target. Likewise, okay, yeah. likewise a parked up um, vehicle or anything vehicle, like that. Moag, anything is is a target. So you want minimum exposure for your assets. Yeah. And likewise, once authentication is completed, then you get the order to execute. So go in and snatch them. Um, and I mean, it's a lot of the talk and a lot of the, especially at NATO joint level, it's all air assets. But I mean, when you translate that down to down to mechanized infantry. If you think of how to secure the area, it's essentially a cordon and snatch. Yeah. It's a cordon and snatch, but you're just using the radio to authenticate properly. Yeah, okay. And that makes it all that much safer, that bit much safer. Yeah. So you think cordon and snatch, get your outer cordon, make sure nothing moves in or out, anything that's in there, sterilize it. Then you have your rescue vehicles with overwatch from the, from the outer cordon. Yeah. In you go and snatch them. Final authentication. Authentication. On board. Straight back. Well, don't touch the brakes then until you until hit the front gate of the car. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's. I mean, that's where the other support assets yeah. come in. Um, it could be, you know, the cab providing Overwatch with with the CRVs and and the Gucci equipment they have on them. Mm. Um, you could have um, the MPs keeping the route open, so yeah. they're following. So that literally they don't have to touch the rescue vehicles. Don't touch the brakes until they get in. Traffic is sealed off, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the, there's a role for everyone if it's thought about. And, and that extraction, is that still the end of the exercise or is there a... That's the, the end of the exercise. That is what concludes the course then. Okay, well, fantastic. So you'd encourage anybody out there, any of the any NCO yeah, to come it's down a, it's, or officer to come down there and give it a go? It's a good challenge. Um, it's a very big challenge, to be honest, because um, it's very, very robust. We've... We've had 14 courses now, and uh, only two of them have finished with a full complement of students. Okay. And two years ago, there was only one individual left. Um, Just not for everybody. It's it's not for everybody, yeah. Oh, fantastic. But it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge, and it's very, very interesting. Yeah, well, this is what people, people claim they're looking for, like, so, yeah. you know, yeah, come down and try it out. Well, at the end of that, there's certainly a lot of interesting information, both for serving members and for people with an interest out uh, in uh, the wider world. Uh, thanks very much for coming on to the show, Barry. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. 
For further information on the Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media platforms and military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to check out the members area of military.ie. Today's episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Forces podcast is available for download on Spotify, iTunes, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with a new episode. Until then, stay safe.